Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. For today's episode, we will be highlighting the 2015 NAM oral history interview with synthesizer pioneer and electronic music composer Suzanne Chiani. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. So welcome back, everyone. This is a very exciting episode, and we're excited to jump right into it. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Suzanne has been a very important part of the introduction of electronic music into popular culture, including commercials and movies, uh, sound effects for video games, all kinds of stuff. And I think along the way, she has created a really important uh, influence on other people, not only um, other composers, but specific to women who want to be involved with electronics in general. Uh, so she's been very encouraging in that field. And it's really amazing to see her influence uh, musically, uh, which is obviously very, very uh, evident in popular culture, but also behind the scenes within the music products industry, the enormity of her influence and her encouragement on other people, including me, I must say. I remember getting an album that she created uh, that she released, The Velocity of Love, that was based on some uh, bloops and bleeps, as we like to call uh, electronic music. And remembering thinking, wait a minute, I've heard that in the commercial. Oh, wait a minute, I remember hearing that in a TV show. And that's really, really, really a fascinating eye-opening experience to think of this one person having such a presence in the things that we do every single day. Um, I love that about her career. And she's very nonchalant about that and wants to focus on, as you will hear in her interview, the technical parts of how things have evolved over time. Getting involved in the early uh, 60s and late 60s when this technology was really emerging uh, and seeing it go all the way through to today, I think is something that she's taken uh, great pride in. Uh, what she won't say and didn't say too much in this interview, uh, but we get to say is that she played a role in that. She definitely played a role in how things developed. Uh, knowing Don Buchla and giving him suggestions along the way, for example, uh, were definitely uh, in resulting in some changes in what he produced as far as his own uh, product line of uh, electronic instruments. So very fascinating career. And I hope you guys enjoy today's podcast. Yeah, definitely just such a huge influence uh, in the industry and uh, for both, you know, in both electronics and for women in the industry in general. Uh, and so without further ado, let's start listening to her uh, 2015 interview where uh, beginning, she's going to just talk a little bit about her background, which is a little uh, not what you would expect, probably for uh, electronic uh, guru like she is. But uh, let's listen to Suzanne Chiani. Did you have 
music in your home growing up. And I also know that you took the initiative yourself. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I came from a big family. So I had four sisters and a brother. And uh, we had a Steinway piano in the house. So that was one of the very important, you know, initial exposures that I had to music. But the other thing, one of the most important um, contributions was when my mother went to a fire sale for um, records, and she came home with this big stack of LPs that were uh, classical romantic, mm -hmm. Grieg, Rachmaninoff, Chopin, and uh, I just, you know, my world was just uh, um, shocked by the beauty of this music. So those were important. I, I was self-taught on the piano. I had uh, piano lessons for one year, and I didn't like my teacher because I wanted to learn classical music, and he wanted me to learn uh, pop music. Mm. So I taught myself to read. I, I knew that the middle C was under the S in Steinway, and I figured out the rest. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was old enough, I took myself to uh, Longy School of Music in Boston. And how old were you at that point? I was in high school, high school. when I went to Longy. Yeah. Did you grow up out east there? Yeah, I grew right. up just outside of Boston. Okay. Quincy. And that began your formal education? Well, uh, I, I, was, I went to high school at their academy and I knew already that I was in love with music mm -hmm. and that I already knew I wanted to be a composer. But they didn't have a music program there. So I found a professor, uh, my chemistry professor, who knew about music and he gave me private lessons. And uh, he was building a pipe organ in his garage, and it was very interesting. What was his name? His name was um, Mr. Copperthwaite. <laughs> I don't even know his first name. <laughs> and then I went to Wellesley College and majored mm. in music, and then I did a graduate degree at UC Berkeley, a master's in composition. Okay. Yeah. Before we go to Berkeley, mm -hmm. let's talk a little more about the music you were listening to during this period. Where Was it a pretty much a steady diet of the classics, or were you influenced by popular culture as well? Well, you know, it was a total duality because socially, we were all listening, you know, to the same music, you know, the dance music and the Beatles and Elvis Presley and, you know, anything that was um, kind of viral on, on the radio. You know, I remember the first, I remember the first time I heard a Beatles song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. You know, where I was standing on a corner in Boston. I remember the first time I heard uh, Elvis Presley sing, uh, I think it was You Are My Sunshine. Um, you know, I was standing in the yard on Cape Cod and I heard this on the radio. So there were a lot of, uh, you know, very decisive moments in pop music. But my steady diet and my passion was Chopin and classical music, and I could play that for hours on the piano. So I always had that kind of mixture mm -hmm. of classical. And would you attend live performances as well? Very much so. I was a huge fan of Glenn Gould. Mm -hmm. I lived near Boston Symphony, so when Glenn Gould came to town, I went to every single concert and held my breath through the whole thing. You know, he was so charming, you know, with the scarf and the water and it was middle of summer and he was wearing gloves and a hat yeah. Yeah. yeah and so you went out to berkeley 
UC Berkeley, UC not Berkeley. not Berkeley College of Music. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. UC Berkeley in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Why did you know all the way across the country for for what reason? For the program, or did you have a specific intent? Um, this is one of the strangest uh, unknowns in my life, in that um, when I was in college, I was afraid to continue in music. I I wanted to go to law school because I, I thought, well, I'll never make a living, you know, as a composer. And uh, my music professor refused to recommend me for law school. So I took my law boards, and I was supposed to get a recommendation from the professor in my major. And I think it was he, Hubert Lamb, who uh, connected me with UC Berkeley because I never applied there. And I got a full fellowship, so they paid me to go there. And uh, so I, so I went, and it was the perfect place for me to be. Why do you say that? Because it was 1968, and I went from this very, you know, sheltered Wellesley, yeah. beautiful campus to the center of the free speech movement, and uh, you know, tear gas and protests, and uh, and I met Don Buchla, yeah. almost well, not right away, but very soon. And, uh, Can you tell me, do you remember the circumstances of meeting him? I do. Um, I, the music department at UC Berkeley was right next to the architecture department. And um, a friend of mine in architecture uh, was the TA for Harold Paris, who is a sculptor. And when Harold saw that I was involved in music, he said, oh, you have to meet my neighbor. So he had a big loft on the Oakland waterfront. And one night he took me to the, you know, the loft next door. These were big warehouses in the middle of no place. And it was Don Buchla's studio. So Harold Paris, the sculptor, introduced me to Don Buchla. And I entered that space and saw, you know, this... Uh, cityscape of modules. Yeah. You know, he had just walls of Buchla modules. Yeah. So when I finished school, I um, I went to work for him. Had you had any uh, exposure to electronic music at that point? You know, um, there was a little inkling of it when I was at Wellesley. We had a partnership with MIT. Mm -hmm. And one night, uh, our music class went to MIT, and the professor there, this was like in 1967, was trying to get his computer, a big, you know, university computer, to make a sound. A sound. A sound. A sound. And I, I heard that little sound, and I thought, you know, something triggered in my brain. I didn't know, you know, what this was. But I was searching for it after that. So when I saw Buchla's uh, set up there and heard, you know, this, I, I mean, it was so new to me. I, I really hadn't heard of it even. Um, I did, while I was at uh, UC Berkeley, take a course with Max Matthews. So I would drive down to Stanford University at four in the morning and... Uh, I studied with Max Matthews and John Chowning at the Artificial Intelligence Lab, which was the very, you know, 
Max was, of course, the father of computer music. And he was there for a summer teaching Music 5. And John Chowning was at that moment discovering FM. I was there. You know, I remember his, he was drawing those sine waves, you know, and explaining this, you know, multiplication. And, uh, so that was like being in the right place at the right time, too. Yeah. How did the how did Don Buchla and these other people in this kind of burgeoning electronic scene interface with that greater uh, scene around Berkeley at that time? I've always been interested in that. I know, I believe Don took some of his machines to different you know gatherings or whatnot from the emerging you know subculture or or whatnot. Did you have any exposure to the, how that was working? Well, the university itself was not interested at that time in technology. It came just after I left, you know, that they started to be interested. I remember doing some projects with Don. Um, uh, he had a, a studio at 1750 Arch, but we would do, you know, it was a very free time. It, it was amazing. I mean, we did something, I remember, at um, an art gallery where it was, uh, I mean, I don't know if I can say this, but I mean, everybody was naked. I mean, we did, you know, we did. That's fine. It, it was a time that just never went. You know. We're talking about history. We want to be accurate. <laughs> so it's really, yeah, it was an unusual time. And uh, I remember uh, another experience with Dawn was that um, we all went to the Altamon concert. Oh. And Don was in charge of the sound system. And because he was my buddy, I got to sit on the, you know, speaker platform where I had a great view of the concert. And of course, everybody was stoned on something. And, uh, unfortunately, from my perspective up high, I could see the, yeah, the violence. And so, um, that was, a, you know, I, I left. As soon as I saw somebody killed, I mean, it was just. Uh, so you were a witness to that entire. I was a witness, part. and from my perspective, you know, I could see it, but the crowd couldn't, mm -hmm. because there was like this, you know, big swath of crowd that went off into the distance, and only in the first couple of rows were aware of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. Yeah. But it was not a happy moment. So. Why was Don doing the sound? He was friends with um, the Grateful Dead, okay. and uh, the Grateful Dead, as far as I remember, was friends with the Hell's Angels. Yeah, and um, I think the problem, as he states it, was that it was the wrong Hell's Angels yeah. that were in charge. Uh, when I was talking about Don a few moments ago, bringing some of his equipment out to gatherings, I know it was some of the early acid tests. He had brought some of his. Uh, you know, equipment there to yeah. see what the reaction was. And were you at any of those events? You know, um, I never took acid with Don. No, <laughs> not what I'm getting at. <laughs> but I did take acid. <laughs> you know? But uh, and that was very pivotal too. I really do think you know. I was not a big fan of psychedelics because. You know, once was enough, twice mm -hmm. you see that it repeated, so it wasn't an ongoing thing. But I think it was um, very uh, creatively opening just to 
experiment with those uh, those drugs at that time. And I think that was part of the whole creativity of that time. You know, that things really did turn a corner. You are listening to Suzanne Chiani on the Music History Project. She just brought up two big names, uh, Dr. John Chowning, who is the father of FM synthesis, and Don Buchla, another genius in the synthesizer world. Um, we've actually interviewed both of them as well, and we have their full interviews on the NAM website. Um, you can head over to namm.org slash library, search for either of their names or Suzanne's name, and their interviews will pop up for you. Yeah, and I was uh, remiss when we were talking earlier about favorite albums that Suzanne has done. Oh my gosh, you guys. Live Quadrophonic? How come I didn't mention that? Uh, but this is a great time to bring it up because uh, that was, of course, the use of the Bukla synthesizer during that recording and uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about uh, Don Buchla in this next segment coming up. A fascinating guy, you know. Uh, to me, I've always given him a lot of credit for um, really focusing on trying to create these electronic synthesizers in the very early days. He didn't have the same vision that Bob Moog did as far as commercializing it. And so a lot of people have not really been aware of his major contributions, uh, especially to voltage control module synthesizers. Uh, I think Bob and uh, Dom were, were working on them sort of simultaneously, but independently on both of the coasts in the United States uh, around the same time. Uh, but Don was really more focused on uh, trying to change things uh, quickly. And of course, the voltage control allowed that. But he was also working on envelopes and, and, and other um, devices that would help these uh, sounds being produced. Um, and as a result, I don't think he really thought about the commercial use of it too often. And uh, he got into that, of course, a little bit later on. Um, and then he was so welcoming to anybody who wanted to help uh, compose with his instruments. And I think that his uh, work with um, Morton Subotnik in the early days led to Suzanne's introduction to the Buchla, which she, I think, really perfected over the years. I think that if you want to have a go-to artist for a Buchla synthesizer, it's got to be Suzanne. I mean... Uh, uh, unbelievable control method. And I've heard so many other people play and even try to emulate the same sounds that she created. And there's just something, it's kind of like, it reminds me of the touch of a pianist. You know, uh, you can tell the difference between one and another. And I, I think even with electronic instruments, there still can be that personal stamp. There still can be that personal connection to the instrument that you can detect as a listener. And to me, she embodies that total concept without a doubt. So anyway, she's going to talk a little bit more about the man who created the instruments that she used. Here's more of Suzanne's interview right here on the Music History Project. When did you uh, start uh, composing, working with electronic equipment? Well, I went to work at Don's... Um, well, I, I actually, my first exposure was at the Electronic Tape Music Center. Oh. 
that was housed. That. Yeah, it was housed at that time at Mills College. Mm-hmm. It wasn't connected to Mills. It was just housed there. Mm-hmm. So it was completely separate. And as a, you know, as an electronic musician, you could go in and for $5 an hour. A lot of money back then. You know, nobody even collected. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like, it was very free. And, you know, you'd go in and you'd stay up all night. I would stay up all night. And, um, what were you doing? I was playing with, uh, Bukla Series 100. Mm -hmm. There was a Moog there, an early Moog. And they had a lot of surplus parts. So they had, um, you know, U.S., mm, government surplus parts from the army mm-hmm. and you could you know experiment with things and a lot of people don't realize that at that time there was no keyboard really attached to a lot of this equipment correct well that's my big you know pet peeve is that the keyboard did get attached to it because okay. uh, oh, i'd love to hear it. can you explain that yeah i mean don to this day you know holds a special place because he was aware of the potential of electronics as a new performance uh, modality, as a new instrument that would require new interfaces. The problem was that um, people in general didn't understand electronic music. I mean, if you were, you know, back then, and you were playing a synth, like if I played the bukla, they actually couldn't fathom that the sound was coming from the machine. There was just no, you know, concept. So I think this was the frustration uh, for the marketing of the instrument. And Moog, who is his counterpart on the East Coast, you know, at a certain point, just to identify this thing to a larger audience as a musical instrument they put the keyboard on it and that to me was the beginning of the end because you know the keyboard was as they say an inappropriate interface it was a mechanical system that you know generally created one event for one action and the beauty of electronics was that uh, first of all, you don't need a mechanical action because there's nothing being struck. You know, it's just a connection. And that when you make that connection, you could assign it to any number of simultaneous events. You could hit a key, you could stop a sequencer, you could start a sequencer, you could, you know, the key was a command that was, uh, assignable in many directions. So Don always remained faithful. I mean, I did for a while have a, you know, Don did make an early polyphonic. Like a strip? No, it was actually had a, it it was a keyboard. It was a little tiny thing, but it didn't function like a normal keyboard. You know, it was a, the reason he did it was that it was, you know, it could um, create the illusion of polyphony. Mm -hmm. There was still no polyphony, but if you created contacts quickly enough you could get you know three notes at a time but uh so what happened was that um synthesis when it became popularized with the keyboard the next thing that happened was you know switched on Bach and people thought it was about the timbre oh this can make the sound of a flute 
This can make the sound of a violin. This can make, you know, so they started playing timbres on a keyboard. And it was never, to me, as a Buchla person, about the sound, but about the way the sound could move. It wasn't constricted. It wasn't limited by a keyboard or by your 10 fingers. It was immediately liberated. It wasn't about the range of, you know, all the traditional instruments had those limits, you know, a range from here to here, a dynamic range, a breath range, how long a note could be. In, in electronics, it was a whole new world. A note could last for days. A note could go from here to here. It could go with lightning speed. It could create um, what, you know, in, in traditional music, there was this fascination in academic music of becoming more and more complex. You know, if you were worth your salt as a composer, you wrote something that was almost impossible to play. You know, 11 against 13 or, you know, something that was like very, you know, un- uh, white note or whatever, complex. And the thing about the bukla, for instance, was that complexity was immediately something simple. Complexity just was no longer a challenge. If you wanted a 13 against 11, you just made it 13 against 11, you know? So the whole idea of, um, you know, I, I always had a problem with, because I came in the, uh, through the academic system to some degree, but I never, uh, liked the, the, um, the goal of academic composition. So I found electronic music to be very liberating, that you didn't have to compete in that senseless arena, and, and you could go back to, you know, I'm a romantic. So for me, uh, I embraced simplicity and tonality as like a new frontier. And a lot of composers did that. It's very interesting because mm-hmm. I don't think simplicity is a word that people would apply to early electronic instruments, like what we're talking about in the, the bukla and the early mokes. It seems like those were... Had, had accessibility issues, thus the keyboard, correct? Yes. I mean, is there a way to balance that out somehow? Well, you know, for me, um, what I because I was really proselytized by Don Buchla, mm-hmm. you know, I worked with him, and I really, you know, adopted his philosophy that this instrument was a performance instrument, and um, that... <clears throat> You know, you, you develop new techniques. So he had something called a multiple arbitrary function generator. And, uh, I'm just about to release actually some early live Buchla concerts from 1975. And I listened to this, these performances and I realized I could, I could probably never do that today because it's, you know, it's, it's not simple in terms of the mental engagement that it involved, and being able to perform it live, it was very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to, uh, you know, rehearse for months, and, mm-hmm. you know, I would have certain patches in mind 
And then the trick was to get from one to the next one in a smooth way. And it all involved, you know, the brain, the central brain was the multiple arbitrary function generator, which allowed, um, it was like a three-dimensional sequencer. And to me, there's still nothing that reaches that um, potential yet, you know, that that ability. You know, I see a lot of the new Eurosynths, the Euroracks, and so much imagination is going into this resurgence now in modular systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm coming back. <laughs> Are you? To electronics. I really? said, yeah, I said I never would, but. Um, Were you able to go down to Hall E or see anything at mm-hmm. the show? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's very interesting. Oh, they all know me. Yeah. <laughs> they all know me. And you know, and I did play for for Moog this year, which is kind okay. of strange, yeah, mm. because I'm not a Moog person. But right. uh, you know, it's it's kind of like there are no demarcations anymore. It's not about uh, you know now it's one. It's like Moog and Bukla were early, and the the importance of the. You know, the early days has resurfaced in a way because the kids are very into vintage now. You know, they're going back to vinyl and turntables and, you know, those early modular uh, systems and anything that's analog. Analog is back. So I love that aspect about this historic moment. That, you know, what I felt had been lost, you know, that electronic music was developing, developing, and then it went into a black hole. And now it seems like we're going back a little bit and we're saying, you know, wait a minute. You know, I think this time around, there's going to be that potential realized. You know, electronic music in, in the early days was always spatial. You know, moving the space was a one of the basic parameters of a sound. Mm-hmm. You know, the volume, the timbre, the spatial location. The, you know, and that's coming back. Uh, so I'm, you know, for me, I, I do have a new bukla um, that I'm surprised that I got. I mean. When I moved back to the West Coast 20 years ago, I reconnected with Dawn. But I continued to be a pianist and composer. You know, my first album out here was orchestra and piano. And um, Dawn and I got together and played tennis a lot because he loves tennis. And I never thought I was going to get a bukla again, you know, but then it happened. How is it? Well... Um, You know, it's like meeting an old friend who's completely different. Uh, Yeah. You know, there are... Okay, for one thing, it has a memory. And, you know, so that takes some of the challenge out. You know, the whole... The whole modus, you know, operandi was to find, you know, how do you... How do you keep this going without memory? Now I have a memory. So, okay. So that challenge is gone. Okay. Um, and, you know, for me, I mean, everything's just a little different. The filters are different. The oscillators are different. 
there's a MIDI and, you know, I, I don't know. It's, so I'm getting used to it. Um, I miss very much the multiple arbitrary function generator. There's something called a dual arbitrary function generator. And it's just not as smart as the old one. I might need two of them. Uh, but I've been doing live concerts. Um, I was very uh, shy about, you know, taking this on the road because in the old days, uh, it was so fragile yeah. that if it broke, I was just I devastated. I read a phenomenal interview that you gave a while ago, and you were talking about how you finally had to say goodbye. Yeah, I'm crying now. I just don't even think about it. But you were also talking about, you know, if it would break down, you'd have to send it, and it might get broken back, and, you know, within transit and, and things like that. I can only imagine um, the uh, level of emotional involvement that would uh, that would uh, that would incorporate. Would you I'm a little gun shy. <laughs> gun shy. Uh, you know, what, in trying other... No, you know, I took it to Europe, and um, it survived. You know, it did. It didn't break. But it's it's a horrible thing when you have a unique instrument, and uh, you know the airlines are just an unknown. You know, there's no way to safely guarantee that that it can arrive, and it's not replaceable. Mm -hmm. You know, so you can really hear just the passion and the love that she really has uh, for electronic music and. you know, it's so great to listen to her. And you, even though I really don't exactly know what she's talking about <laughs> in its entirety, I can feel that emotion and that passion from her talking. Uh, so I'm going to let her continue to tell her great story. Uh, she's going to go into a little bit more now about her, um, job that she had or commercial that she works on and, uh, working with different companies and, uh, forming her own uh, music house. So here is Suzanne. Chiani. Let's jump to a different okay. section. And I know at some point you moved out to New York in the 70s. Yeah. And started working with uh, marketing and got into more commercial sounds and, and had put together an entire body of work that was used for uh, you know commercial purposes. How did that come about? Well, um, my involvement with commercial mu- music was motivated really monetarily, financially. Mm -hmm. But because I was using an instrument that nobody understood, I had a huge amount of freedom. Uh, And I, you know, my goal was to be a recording artist. Mm -hmm. And I would make the rounds of the record companies. In those days, you had to have a record deal. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just go out and make vinyl, and there were no CDs. And you know, you were beholden to those middlemen if you wanted to be a recording artist. But none of the record labels were interested. They didn't know what it was. Yeah. They thought I should play the guitar and sing. <laughs> and, and that was that, you know. And... Uh, so, uh, commercial music, I mean, uh, advertising, on the other hand, embraced the unknown. They thought, I don't know what this is, but it's new and different, and we want to be the first one to have it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was a completely different reception. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it just, 
I, I can't say my entry into it was completely, you know, smooth. It took, it took a long, it took a, at least a year to get the Coca-Cola, you know, assignment there. Oh, just to get the assignment? Yeah, I mean, I called, you know, you every two weeks. Or anything like that, or just pitch them on an idea? You know, um, I just called and called and called, and uh, finally, after I'd been stood up like four times, I marched. This is so amazing because I, I said, where is he? You know, the head of music, Billy Davis. And they said, well, he's at Mayfair Recording. And I said, I ran over there and I knocked on the control room door and I said, you have an appointment with me. And the guy goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had just had, first of all, I was starving, you know, to be in New York and to need money. Yeah, bad spot. Yeah. So, you know, I was motivated, really motivated. So anyway, I walked into that control room and there was a Coca-Cola jingle playing and there was a hole in it. It's just a little blank space. And it, this is so amazing that this, you know, this coincidence. Yeah. And he said, uh, can you do something in there? And I said, yes. He said, well, what do you need? I said, well, I need my bukla. He said, well, how long will that take? I said, 20 minutes. And I went and got my bukla. I set it up in the studio. And I made this, I, you know, I made the sound of the bubbles because, um, you know, I asked him, I said, well, is this going to be used in this just one space? I mean, should I do something in the key of E flat, like this mm-hmm. song? And he wasn't sure. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to limit this thing. And I had the idea of if I did bubbles, it would be work in any context. So I, I made the bubbles and, uh, they used it in every Coke commercial. They did. Yeah. Was it the bottle cap and then bubbles? Yeah, it was the whole, it was called the pop and pour. Yeah, the pop and pour. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my big break, you you know. Pardon me? Did you get paid? I got paid so much for that. I just, I mean, I, I've had some wonderful surprises. <laughs> that was one of them. That's great. And then yeah. it just, I, I assume it just branched out from there and more work came in, correct? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I was, uh, when I started out, I was doing session work. For people, you know, they would hire me to come in and do electronics. Mm. And I worked in the, you know, for record producers and, uh, I did a lot of session work. But what I found was that they didn't really know how to incorporate the electronics effectively. Mm. They didn't leave the right space for it. Mm. And I thought, well, I really should be doing the whole thing. Mm. So I started my own music house, Shawnee Musica. And uh, that way I could control the whole production. And uh, we became, you know, the number one high-tech music production house in New York. That must have been a challenge in and of itself, being on the business side of it. Well, you know, I I, I say, you know, I never had a business model because I didn't know anything about business. My father was a doctor. And everybody in our family was either a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. So I ran my studio like an emergency room. <laughs> <'Cause that's laughs> 
the only thing I knew. <laughs> so what did that mean? And when some idea comes in, all hands on deck, or? Well, when my dad had surgery, you know, everything had to be perfect. And he would come home and he would say, they didn't have the right wire. I mean, I can't operate like this. I need it. You know, I need every, the stuff. So he had to keep everybody, you know, on top of everything. And I did the same thing. I had people like, you know, first of all, it was a huge responsibility. I mean, we were on huge accounts and they were spending a lot of money. So I ran a tight ship and, uh, I can't do that anymore. Uh, and that was in Manhattan, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And at a certain point, you decided to not do the commercial work. Is that correct? Yes. Um, my motivation in doing the commercial work from the beginning was to fund my artistic recordings. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I did manage to get uh, a record deal, my first deal in Japan for Seven Waves, my first album. And then I did The Velocity of Love and I licensed that with RCA. And uh, then I, I actually signed a traditional record deal with my friend Peter Bauman who had private music. And even though I was fiercely independent from the beginning, and refused to sign a traditional deal. Peter was my friend, and I I didn't imagine that in the end I would lose, you know, five masters. I, I you know, I was just clouded by friendship, I guess. And, um, so, but once my my recording started to gain momentum, I I. Uh, I wanted to leave the commercial production and I wanted to give it responsibly to my, uh, fellow, you know, the people that were working with me because I had a nice, you know, there are a lot of people working at Shawnee Music Up. So I tried to transfer it to them. But the other, you know, motivation was that I had an early breast cancer and I thought that I should leave New York. So, uh, I did. So when was this, the early 80s? 1992, oh, I left New York. okay. Yeah. You moved out to the West Coast. Moved to the West Coast. Yeah. Yeah, for one year. I went for one year, but I never, yeah. I, I don't understand. Well, I I didn't know I was moving. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it always happens like that. I didn't yeah. know I was moving to New York either. Yeah. You know, I went to do a concert, and then I just never went back. Same interview, you said something that I thought was phenomenal, because I'm a West Coast transplant. Uh, and you talked about the energy out here, much different from the city energy. Yeah. And you called it one-dimensional. Yeah. Which I agree with because I've, for the past couple of years, been trying to put my finger on it because you don't get that same, you know, juice from multiple directions. But you do get a, a, a psychological charge in a certain sense. How do you think that's affected your work? Well, um, I say it's not a complete protein. You know, you can't live by that energy system alone. Um, and I think it has affected my work. But it's kind of a dilemma because, I, as I say, I'm a victim of the beauty. Yeah. You know, I'm living... It's funny because when I lived in New York City in the middle of Manhattan, I wrote music about the sea. 
you know. And now I'm living on the sea. And um, I haven't done, you know, uh, my last album was in 2005, you know, so I'm a little too relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I can just feel us all geeking out with this. This is fantastic stuff. What a, uh, a fun and fascinating interview. It's really great to relive this, and I appreciate you guys bringing this up uh, for our podcast today. You know, one of the things that uh, I mentioned earlier, but I think is worth um, mentioning again, is to think about all of the commercials and the sounds and popular culture that we have heard Suzanne create for us over the years. The pop and pull with, of course, uh, Coca-Cola that she mentioned is definitely one of them. Another favorite of mine is the Atari theme. Uh, The logo sound is fantastic. And the pinball machine, I mean, my gosh, it's sort of endless uh, what she's done and what she continues to do. Uh, Really fun and, uh, as I say, a great opportunity to, uh, to give her some credit for all that she's done over the years. So without further ado, let's jump back in to the final segment of Suzanne's 2015 NAM Oral History interview, where she's going to be talking about some more recent projects and some trips that she took to the NAM show. Finders Keepers out of England, you know, called me a few oh, yeah. years ago, and they wanted to release archival tapes. And I had a whole storage, you know, when I moved out from New York, I put everything in storage and it's still there. And some of those tapes were, you know, truly deteriorating. And I thought, well, okay, maybe it is time to unearth some of those early analog, you know, tapes and uh, transfer them. So I started a project of transferring, you know, these little cassettes and quarter-inch tapes. And uh, they released, I thought, why would anybody want to release, you know, this early stuff? But there seems to be a, a lot of interest, I think, you know, with the resurgence of interest in the history of the, the early analog days, People are interested in that early stuff. So I have been uh, working. It takes, you know, time to do all this stuff, to find it, and then to, uh, you know, prepare it. So I'm working with them now, and we're releasing selected archival tapes. And the other thing that happened is that they invited me to perform are you going to do that? We've done this. And oh. I thought, okay, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. You know, a year ago, we played in L.A., and I didn't even want to bring my bukla down there because I was afraid. Uh, and so I borrowed a bukla from Alessandro Cortini, and, you know, we, we played uh, there. They're DJs. Mm. So this is, you know, a whole yeah. new thing for me. Yeah. Then we played in New York City at Lincoln Center as part of the Unsound Festival. And I had so much fun, you know, just playing the bukla and, you know, with the, you know, they have uh, film imagery. And and uh, then we did a tour in Europe uh, last fall. Played Berlin, Krakow uh, in uh, Norway and... Uh, where else in Italy? So you know, it's just been fun for me. And this time around, I'm not taking it as seriously. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm just having fun. What type of uh, what type of reaction and interaction do you have with the younger or the newer generation? What kind of questions do they ask you, or how do they approach you? Well, I'm shocked because, as I say, I've been under a rock, you know, for you know so many years. I'm just coming out into electronics, and it's overwhelming. I mean, the uh, it's like they all know who I am, right? Don't ask me how because I haven't been, you know, electronic for a while, um, and they're so interested in the early stuff, you know, so you start to feel like you're like a, a source of some kind of some authenticity that they're hungry for. And I love interfacing with them because I love what they're doing. I love that things are not keyboard. I mean, these are kids that are into modular stuff. They're not doing, you know, yeah. tone music. And, and they're, you know, the, the whole Euro rack phenomenon. Um, I mean, I played at this convention this year, the absolute reincarnation of the Moog 35. You know, they made that from original parts. And, uh, it's like going back to the, you know, we're going back in a way to go forward. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Do you see yourself or have you become involved with any of the new manufacturers? Yeah. Do they? You know, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I've always been so bukla. Yeah. And I am. I mean, I have the highest, absolute, highest regard for Bukla. Mm -hmm. I think there's nobody like him. I don't think he was completely understood, and his instruments have been expensive. Uh, but he is truly, to me, the father of, you know, the new concept of instrumental design vis-a-vis -vis electronics. What is misunderstood about, about him? I don't think people realize the um, the genius of his interfaces, you know, that if you go into his instrument, you can you can learn new connections to Electronic music, what is it? I mean, a lot of this stuff I hear now in the Euro synth is, is, uh, little poppy sounds coming out, you know, that are kind of in between drums and whatever, you know. With the bukla, I mean, there are, I can't get what I used to get from the old bukla. I can't do that, even on the new bukla. There was something that was happening back then that we just, we don't even have that right now. And, you know, to put it simply, you know, I just say it's the multiple arbitrary function generator. I was going to ask you. Yeah. Are you going <laughs> like, to have them build you another one of those? I'm working on it. <laughs> I am working on it. Yeah. Is, uh, is this equipment 
Can it? Uh, can you replicate any of this equipment on some of the, you know, our, our whole new digital age? You know, it seems like people are shoving all these things onto laptops now. Is that something that could happen, or, or would you be against that type of thing? I think it's not just me who's against it, but I think that's part of the, you know, revolution here. Mm -hmm. Is that truly people do want instruments? They want instruments. playable instruments. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like touching that knob, you know, and feeling that, you know, and, and I, there's so many new interfaces now that are coming out, you know, the soft keyboards and alternative things. So I, I'm very encouraged that this time, and, and I think, you know, space is going to come back. Spatial location is going to become, you know, when we started using space, spatial location and electronic music it was mostly quadraphonic. And it didn't take off because the normal music industry didn't really have a need for it. You know, if you were playing guitar and singing, like, they couldn't figure out what to do with four speakers. It's mm -hmm. like, why do you, you know, put the back of the hall there? You know, it didn't have a meaning. And then the film industry took over space, you know, oddly, because they weren't even in stereo when I did a film in 1980. You know, the incredible shrinking woman. I had to mix in mono. Mono? Mm-hmm. Theaters were mono. The, oh, so primitive. And then the film industry just took over. You know, they did the 5-1 and they put the... But, you know, they're starting to move their uh, facts spatially. But only electronic music really has an inherent usefulness yeah. for moving sound. And so uh, I think we're going to see that come come back in, in a meaningful way. And it doesn't have to be a lot of speakers. It doesn't have to be, you know, 72, an array of whatever, you know, you just need. Yeah. yeah. But you need theaters that can play that, too. Or performance spaces. Yeah. Whatnot. Or performance really spaces. Like yeah. Yeah. I could go on, but it's not my interview. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just have one question, though, okay. and that's the question of the show, of yeah. the NAMM show, and the question is, what does music mean to you? Well, I mean, music is, um, well, you know, what is music to me? Music is the one steady, connective, you know, backbone of my life. Uh it's the one constant, you know, in, in a life that's unpredictable or changing, moving, this or that. I mean, music is the core of, you know, passion. And it's a wonderful community. You know, when you're here at NAM, and the whole panoply of the culture of music is before you. And it is just so joyous. You know, we're in one big party here, and it's the people with purple hair and red hair, and it's the old people on the violins, and it's the cellos, and it's the, you know, the kids with the digital. It's it's uh, it's just a whole universe. But what I love about it, too, at NAM is that it's like a, it's my community. You know, I come here and I meet people that I've known for years. 20, 30, 40 years. And it's like we're all growing old together, you know, on some level. Even if you don't see everybody 
all the time. You reconnect here and it's just this continuity. You know, it's a wonderful connection that goes on. I lied. I have one more question. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> you reminded me. Do you remember your first NAMM show? You know, um, I remember that I came to NAMM. I was always an AES person. Ah, uh, yeah. So I go way, way, way back with audio engineering. And at a certain point, AES lost its vibrancy. And I said, well, where is everybody? And they said, oh, they're out. they all go to NAMM. I said, what's NAM? you know? And uh, so I remember my first NAM show was like, what am I doing here? Like, first of all, AES was like focused on electronics. And you come to NAM, and it's like the whole world. I mean, you've got like an acre of violins and an acre of, you know, just everything. So um, I remember the impact of coming here. And uh, now the electronic part has grown. It's no longer this tiny little. Yeah. It's just a lot of fun. So with a little love to the NAM show there at the end, uh, that will conclude our podcast today, uh, focusing on Suzanne's uh, NAM World History interview. Thank you very much for joining us. You know, um, for me, this is really exciting because it gives us an opportunity to show a little love and respect to her for her amazing career. You know, she's done over 16 solo albums, been nominated for, I think, five or six Grammy Awards. I think one of the really neat things that, that was bestowed upon her was the uh, the title of New Age Keyboardist of the Year from Keyboard Magazine a couple of years back. So she's definitely getting the respect and um, attention that she deserves. But I, I also feel like there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we don't always know about that, uh, you know, like we were saying earlier, her influence on the industry and her influence on changing the products and suggesting to Don Buchla and the Bob Moog, hey, if you did this, we more people would be able to make this kind of sound and all those kind of things. So it's really neat that she's... Uh, um, been able to sit down with us so that we can learn a little bit more from her and share it with you. I'm really proud about that. What are your guys' final thoughts? Her story is so great. And I just love the fact that she started off with that classical piano background and, uh, just took a real, real sharp turn there <laughs> into all of the, all, all things digital. And, uh, and I mean, she just, you could tell. She was so knowledgeable and so smart about it, but so humble at the same time. Uh, and it was just a great story to listen to and to hear her, her career and, and kind of just really feel her love that she has for, for, uh, for the industry. And it really makes you think about all those little sounds that you hear everywhere. Like someone created that. Someone sat down and really thought it out. And I'm never going to be able to hear anything that she's created the same way again. Cause every time I hear it, I'm just going to think to her and, all the genius that went into producing it. So a very eye-opening podcast. I was very happy to be a part of it. It was a lot of fun. And uh, that'll do it for us. So you will hear from us again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. 
and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.